God, it's such, such an honor to be here today with our family, our brothers and sisters, being able to call you Father because of our brother, our big brother, Jesus Christ, who came to this world to rescue us, to redeem us, and even more than that, to resurrect us. And so today we say you are worthy, and we're here to worship you and to praise you. It's your son's name that we do this. And everybody said, amen. Be seated. Good morning. I don't even have to ask you how you're doing today, right? <laughs> yeah. Just so you know, there's a few emergency folks. Okay. I don't want anybody to be worried. Okay. If anyone would like to get baptized today, um, and I would like to just make it more specific than that. If someone would like to put their trust in Jesus Christ for the first time today, uh, or that has happened to you in the last weeks or months, and you have not been baptized yet, um, uh, at any time, you can go to the back, and uh, we have pastors that are waiting for you. Uh, you don't have to worry about change of clothes. We have everything that you would need. Uh, let nothing stand in the way of, of you getting baptized today, because this really is what this day is all about. It's about the hope that we have through Jesus Christ, that our life, our old life has been buried and we've been raised to, to, to new life in Christ. And so if that is you in the last weeks or today even, um, we'd love to baptize you. Okay, we're coming to the end of John's gospel. I don't know how you feel about that. It has served us so well in this season that we've been in. And as we've uh, seen, as we've studied uh, this book, uh, John, the author of it, a disciple of Jesus, someone who's had a front row seat to, to the life and ministry of Christ, he's carefully choosing these events in Jesus' life to show us that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that if we believe, we would have life in his name. And now we're going to see today the kind of life that Jesus offers, but before we get into that, I first want to show you what John is doing because he's framing the death and resurrection or giving us a lens by which to look at it um, that I think is pretty significant. His gospel itself begins with what three words? I know, can't remember way back those days. First three words of John's gospel are what? In the beginning. Where else do we read those three words? First three words of the Bible, when God created the world. Because John is beginning his gospel with these three words, because right out of the gates, he wants us to know that something as great, as cosmic, as creation, is taking place through Jesus. 
So when we come to our text today, which is John 20, the first verse, I'm just going to read it. Early on the first day of the week, while it was still dark. What happened on the first day of creation? The first Sunday. Well, Genesis describes a chaos that permeates everything, and that chaos Genesis calls darkness. And on that first day, God speaks into the darkness and says, let there be light, and there was light, because God's word called forth a new reality out of the chaos, a reality of light and life, and that was the first day. So when John starts this and says, it's the first day, and it's dark, he's framing the event. He's wetting our appetite. He also does this with the sixth day. The sixth day, of course, is Friday, and the sixth day is the day in which Adam was created. And when Adam was created, it was to all creation, behold this man who I have made in my image, who is entrusted with all creation. And John wants us to know in his gospel, when Pilate presents Jesus with that crown and purple robe, and Pilate says, on the sixth day, behold the man. This is the man that Adam was supposed to be. This is the man we were all called to be. Behold him. And only John also frames Jesus' death in a garden because it's in the garden where the first Adam sinned, where God literally put a tree before Adam and said, obey me and live. And now John wants to show us that the second Adam, Christ, who's also he places in a garden, and God puts a tree before him, a cross, and says, obey me. Do what Adam failed to do. And we see that Jesus obeyed God with all of his heart, and he died so that we could live. Then the seventh day, Sabbath. In the first Sabbath, God rested. And what did Jesus do? He rested. On the seventh day, his body rested in the earth. In fact, you know what every Jew heard in the synagogue on that Sabbath? And we know this because they have an annual reading schedule that predates Jesus. They're going to read it the Sabbath this year before Passover as well. For over 2,000 years, the Sabbath, following Passover, Jews read from Ezekiel 37, where the prophet gets this vision of this valley of death, this killing fields of corpses and skeletons. And God asked the prophet, can these bones live? That makes you wonder, did the disciples go to, go to synagogue on Sabbath? What were they thinking when they heard Ezekiel 37 read when God said, and I'm going to breathe my breath into these dead bones and they're going to come to life again. 
But somehow these disciples missed it. They missed the best part. And here it is in our text. It's the first day and darkness permeates everything. But it's not just another Sunday. Rather like the first day of creation, God on this day again says, let there be light. And the sun rises and the light of life is shining on the world. So don't just see this as just another first day of the week, another Sunday. This is the first day of new creation of God through Christ, recreating, redeeming, repairing, restoring, reconciling, resurrecting a world that he loves. Now here's the question. Is this happening to you? Is God recreating and restoring, repairing, resurrecting you? Paul says if anyone is in Christ, he or she is a new creation. The old is gone and the new has come. So the resurrection is not just a doctrine that Christians believe. It's a reality that breaks into our lives right now and it radically changes us. This is why Jesus, the language, the only language he can use is being born again. Because that speaks to the profound reality of new creation that God is unleashing in us right now. And this is why Paul says, I want to know the power of that. I want to know the power of the resurrection. And this is the life that John is talking about when he says, this life in Christ, that you would know it and believe it and have life in his name. Now, how do we know this life? How do we access this life? Well, that's what our story today is going to show us. The kids read our text for today. If you want to still follow along, it's found in John chapter 20. But as we heard, Mary is the first to visit the tomb of Jesus. And as we just read, it was early in the morning while it was still dark. Mary is also the last to leave the tomb. Others will come, others will go, mainly women. (laughs) Peter and John will also make their way to the tomb. But they all leave. But Mary, she remains. She stays. Because she's this picture of this person who's lost everything. And, and, and why is she this picture? Because she has. Do you know who Mary is? There are several Marys in the Bible. This is not Mary, the mother of Jesus. This is not Mary, who is the sister of Martha and Lazarus. This is Mary Magdalene. Magdalene is not her last name. Magdalene refers to the place where she is from. This is Mary from Magdala. Magdala is a small fishing village on the Sea of Galilee. 
Now, when you look at all the other Marys in the Bible, because there's a lot of them in our New Testament, uh, they're all identified by their relationship to the men in their life, namely their father. Because this is how a patriarchal world worked. A woman's identity, her worth, her significance were attached to the significant men in her life, her sons, uh, her husband, but namely her father. The father's house, the beta of. It defined a person. And it appears that Mary Magdalene doesn't have that. Twelve times she's mentioned in the four Gospels. Nowhere does it mention the household that Mary belongs to as it does with the other Marys. It doesn't tell us who her father is. It doesn't tell her who her husband is. It doesn't name any of her children. And from this, it is easy to deduct that she is a woman who is familyless. She's outside the family, the Beit Av. And we don't know, maybe she lost her parents or maybe she was rejected by her parents. But Mary is someone who knows this pain knows familial pain, and she's alone, and has to fend for herself, and is marginalized. And to be marginalized in that world with no dad, no husband, no children, meant that as a woman, you were incredibly vulnerable because you had no covering, you had no protection, and you were stripped of all your, your worth and value. Now, we do know two things about Mary's past. One is from church tradition, and the other is from the text. And I think both of these uh, understandings kind of give us a, a picture into Mary's brokenness. The, very, the early, early church said that Mary was a prostitute. Again, this is just church tradition. But they attached the story of that woman in Luke chapter 7 when Jesus is dining with the Pharisee. Uh, and, and the story tells us of this nameless prostitute who barges in and starts washing Jesus' feet with her tears. The early church said, that's Mary Magdalene. Here's what we have in the text. Both Mark and Luke tell us that Mary had seven demons. Seven. Seven demons. She was demon-possessed. And the fact that the, the, both texts say that she had seven, seven in the Bible is the number of completion, which is the Bible's way of telling us that she was completely demonized. Probably much like the demonized man in Mark chapter 5, who also had multiple demons. At some point, this demon possessed woman encounters Jesus, and Jesus heals her. Just think of her before and after. 
Now, we know the before and after of others that Jesus cast demons out of. For instance, the man with multiple demons in Mark 5, we know that this man lived naked among the tombs. They couldn't chain him down, and all day he he was just cutting himself. And when Jesus heals this man, when the locals see him for the first time, they're literally horrified. They don't recognize him because the change in this man is so profound. They see this man clothed, normal, and in his right mind. And so Mary, much like this demon-possessed man, had her broken, immoral, demonized life touched by the finger of Jesus, and she's healed. She's made new. She's born again. And even more than that, she's restored to Badov because Jesus and the disciples now become her family. And how do I know that? Because she is mentioned in the Gospels more than any of the disciples other than Peter and John. In fact, in Luke chapter 8, it mentions the women who are at the center of Jesus' ministry and became disciples of Jesus. And Mary Magdalene is the first one mentioned. This woman left everything and became a wholehearted follower of Jesus Christ. Do you see now why Mary... Why she's the first at the tomb. In fact, not many came. And it was mostly women who did come. You know where the disciples are? They're locked up in a room, scared. But listen to verses 10 to 13, John chapter 20. Then the disciples went back, that's Peter and John, to where they were staying. Now Mary stood outside the tomb crying, and as she wept, she bent over to look into the tomb and saw two angels in white cedar where Jesus' body had been, one at the head and the other at the foot. And they asked her, woman, why are you crying? And she replied, they have taken my Lord away, and I don't know where they've put him. Here, Here is Mary. She's the only one remaining. Peter and John didn't stay, but Mary stays because her world has gone dark again. And this too is why the text begins with early in the morning when it was still dark. This also is a reference to Mary. Her whole world has again gone dark. Her life is shattered. She is a lost soul without Jesus. And she doesn't know what to do. She doesn't know where to turn except Jesus, even if that Jesus is a corpse. Where is he? Where have you put him? I mean, you can just hear the desperation in those words. She's desperate. But we need to see more than just her desperation. We must see this woman's relentless strength, her courage, her grit, 
her passionate devotion at all costs. This is a woman of steel. In fact, there's no one in the text that matches her devotion. Go back to the cross. Who stays? First of all, only women stay. The guys all go home. But these women of steel, they stay there, and Mary is one of them. And for six hours, she stays near the cross of Jesus, watching the one she loves so much that she's given her whole whole life to slowly die before her eyes. Then thereafter, when Joseph and and, and Nicodemus uh, boldly asked Pilate for Jesus' body to prepare it, to bury it, Who's there? Mary Magdalene. Can you see her? This dead body, broken, bloody, her hands putting spices on the wounds, her mind thinking about how this body once set me free. Now, some of us today just look at someone like this and we just say, well, that's just her personality. She, you know, she, she, has, she, she has that kind of personality. No, that is not what this is. The one who has been forgiven much is the one who loves much. And Mary is gritty, she's courageous, she's passionately devoted to Christ, not in spite of her past, but because of her past. Because for the Marys of the world, the word grace and mercy are not just words. They're not just concepts that you learn through a sermon or a lecture or a book. Grace to the Marys of the world, it's, it's amazing grace. Because they've experienced that grace at the deepest level of their lives and they can't even think about it. They can't even talk about it without tears and passion. Look at her. And I don't know why so many Christians today are so embarrassed about their past. We hide it. We smooth it over. We never talk about it. If you can't talk about your past, you haven't been healed of your past. We should be the first to be able to say, I once was lost, but now I'm found. I once was a prostitute, but now I've been made whole. I once was demon-possessed, but he set me free. It's Easter Sunday. Can anybody do that right now? Can anybody declare in a simple sentence, I once was blank, but now I'm? Anybody else? Keep it going. Amen. 
telling you. The one who's been forgiven much is the one who loves much. And it's into Mary's dark desperation that she turns around and sees Jesus. Listen to verses 14 to 16. At this, Mary turned around and saw Jesus standing there, but she did not recognize that it was Jesus. He asked her, woman, why are you crying? Who is it that you're looking for? And thinking Jesus was the gardener, she said, sir, if you have carried him away, would you please tell me where you have put him and I will get him? (laughs) See this woman of steel? Tell me where you've put him and I'll get him. And Jesus said to her, Mary, she turned around and cried out in Aramaic, Rabbani, Rabbani, which means my great one. And Jesus said, do not be afraid of me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. Go instead to my brothers and tell them I'm ascending to my Father and to your Father, to my God and to your God. It's only when Jesus calls her by name that she recognizes him and then says, Rabboni. I don't know if you've watched this new series on Jesus called The Chosen. Um, yeah, okay, good. Um, it, it actually depicts this scene of Mary that's not in the Gospels of, of Jesus healing Mary of her demon possession. And it shows Mary Magdalene walking away from Jesus and Jesus pursuing her. And then Jesus just says, Mary. And she drops the pot in her hand and, and, and she turns around and she looks at Jesus and she says, how do you know me? How do you know my name? And Jesus says, Thus saith the Lord who created you, who formed you. Fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you, Mary, by name. And he takes her by the face and says, and you are mine. And she's free. Who are you? Do you know? Who names you? Who's given you your name? We right now live in a culture that is obsessed with identity. And in our modern Western world, it has become so hard and almost hurtful to have an identity because of the way that we do identity formation in our world. It's so different than the rest of the world, and most of us don't even know that. In Mary's world, traditional culture, your identity was given to you. Your father is the one who named you. Your family named you, your tribe. You didn't have to go around searching for a name. That was unheard of in that world. Your dignity, your worth, your purpose, your meaning. It was all given to you, namely by your father. 
And this is why the Father's blessing in this world is so important. He is the one who named you. He is the one who looked at you and spoke delight and praise and affirmation. He declared who you are and why you're here. And just think about our world, because our world could not be more different from this. We are the only culture in history where no one tells us who we are. We have to define who we are. We today don't even let biology determine who we are. We can be anything that we want to be. We can choose what we want to be. It's like Madonna's song when I was in high school. Express yourself. Express whatever you want to be, and you get to be whatever you want to be. But here's where this fails so miserably. You can't bless yourself. And this is why sociologists today are, 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 are telling us that we have a whole generation that's going into the world desperate for constant recognition and praise. They need it all the time. Why we have such fragile identities, probably the most fragile identities in the history of the world. Look at how fragile they are. They're so touchy. They're anxious. We constantly need people to tell us how good we are. We can't even handle it when people disagree with us because we live on the basis that everyone needs to recognize us. Everyone has to like who we are, how we look, what we post, who we belong to. We become obsessed with ourselves because we have no sense of ourselves. We're desperately seeking a name. And this is why we look to so many things to name us, whether it's our job or our status, our politic, our success, a cause, a ministry, a boyfriend, a girlfriend, a sport. Spin Magazine just interviewed Emily Sayers, the once indigo girl. Some of you guys don't know what the indigo girls, but I'm dating myself right now. This is what she said in the first paragraph. She says, I'm working on my insecurities. I'm working on all these negative voices in my head that say I'm not good enough, just like everybody else. I'm working on these negative voices in my head that say I'm not good enough, just like everybody else. See, because in the end, it's our own voice with our own standards of right and wrong and what we think we should be that just crushes us because we don't measure up to the self we're trying so hard to create because we absolutely need someone outside of ourselves to bless us. We need someone that we adore to adore us. We need someone we respect to respect us. We need someone we admire to admire us. We need someone that we love to love us. And even though traditional cultures do this, Mary didn't have it. She's Mary from Magdala. And she's trying so hard to find her worth and her value and her place in this nasty world. But then she encounters Jesus and she finds it. She finds her true self, her true worth, her value, her meaning, and her purpose because she found Christ. 
Think about it. The one who made Mary, who formed her, who knew her to the bottom of her being, yet loved her to the skies. And here she is in our text today as a woman who has lost everything because she lost Christ. But then that voice, Mary, Mary, I'm calling you by name. Do not be afraid, for I have redeemed you. You are mine. And if you want to know what resurrection means, because it means so much. Yes, it means that Jesus has won. Yes, it means that everything we see in Christ raised is what Jesus is going to someday do to our bodies. He's going to do it to the whole world. But resurrection is also something that means something profound right now. That the things that used to name us no longer name us. We no longer derive our identity from those things. We no longer have to make a name for ourselves. We no longer have to strive uh, to, to, to keep that name. We no longer have to justify our name or be so fragile and fearful. Fear not. The one who made you and formed you says to us, I've redeemed you. I've called you by name and you are mine. In verse 17, in fact, Jesus assures Mary, Mary, my father, my father is your father. Do you know right now that we have a father who lives to bless us? Who delights in us? Who knows everything about us? And yet it's just, for some reason, just smitten with us. Does Jesus have your heart? Because look at Mary. Here is a person whose whole heart belongs to Jesus. And see, if we want resurrection to move from a doctrine to a life-changing reality where the old becomes new, we need to become like Mary. And listen, you can sit here and say, well, I don't have a past like that. I, I, you don't have to have a past to have a past. <laughs> Whether we know it or not, we are all desperate for Jesus. We are all hopelessly lost apart from him. It's just the Marys of the world who know that a lot better than everybody else. But like Mary, become desperate because only Jesus can give you a name. Only Jesus can redeem your life from the pit. Only Jesus can crown you with glory and honor. And what a year it's been. Some of us, I know right now, are going through a dark season. This has been a hard year. Loneliness, depression, anxiety, fear, despair. It's off the charts. I mean, people ask me sometimes, like, why is your church open? I'm like, are you kidding me? 
And maybe you were Marius in the early dark mornings of your life. You're just there. Despair. Listen, if you want resurrection, new creation to break forth into your life, be like Mary. Seek him with everything you have. Stay with him. When it's unpopular and, and, and maybe even dangerous or socially unacceptable, remain. Stay. Don't leave. Cling to him. He is our hope. He is our salvation. He is our life. And when we do this, this is how resurrection life breaks in and breaks out of us. I mean, Jesus literally has to say to her, Mary, stop clinging to me. You're hurting me. But verse 17 and 18, Jesus said, Mary, do not hold on to me so tightly, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. Go instead to my brothers and tell them, I am ascending to my Father and to your Father, to my God and to your God. And Mary Magdalene went to the disciples with the news, I have seen the Lord. Mary is not only the first to see the risen Christ. She is the first apostle. Because what apostle simply means is to be sent. So stop and think about this. This once demon-possessed former prostitute is the first commissioned by Jesus to go and tell the good news of the resurrection. I can't believe. Are you guys sleeping? (laughs) I mean, this is the whole thing with Jesus. Go and tell my brothers I'm alive. See, not only does the resurrection change who we are to the core, but it also changes the direction of our lives. The force of our life is no longer inward, but rather it's outward. No longer are we living for ourselves. All the self-importance, self-centeredness, self-gratification, self-obsession, all those self-words start to die because that hole in the center of ourself is filled with the life of Jesus Christ. Our egos are humbled, humiliated, and at the same time, utterly satisfied and fulfilled. No longer are we needy. We are full. Our hearts are full. Our lives are full, irrespective of our circumstances, because we possess Christ. And as a result of this, the force of our life is now outward. No longer do we live. What's in it for me? And see, this is why all of us are called to be more than just disciples, but we're called, all of us are called to be apostles, the sent out ones into the world who can proclaim like Mary to our world, I have seen the Lord. He is alive. And when you think about all the stories in the Bible and all the greats who encountered God 
had these incredible encounters from Abraham. I mean, think about Abraham. Oh my goodness, there's a God. I just seen him and God's first words, Abraham, go. Moses in the burning bush. First words to Moses, Moses, go. Go to Pharaoh and get my people to get out. Isaiah, when he sees, literally he says, I saw the Lord. And God says to him, who am I going to send? And Isaiah says, send me. Isaiah goes. That demon-possessed man in Mark 5, he wants to be a disciple of Jesus. Jesus says, no, I want you to go. I want you to go. I want you to go and tell your family what what Christ has done for you. The disciples are going to get the same charge. Go into all the world and proclaim the good news. And here is Mary. She is the first apostle. Go and tell my brothers. Who are you? What are you doing here? Do you know him? Do you know the power of the resurrection? And you know why we're here? To go and to tell a world that is starving for hope that Jesus is alive. God, if there's anyone in this room right now who does not know that hope, that life, that resurrection life, God, may they be like Mary and seek you until they find you. God, may we be a people, a room full of apostles that are going to leave this place today with the hope of the resurrection. And God, we're going to bring that life and share that life with a world that so desperately needs it for your glory. Amen.